beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Girth. Look at the hustle of Lamar Odom. Off to Kobe Bryant! And Kobe with emphasis. Artest looking, gets it to Bryant. Bryant dribbling, has to put it up with the buzzer. Banks it in! Ha-ha! He banks in the three! And the Lakers win the game! And that is just greatness personified. People think they know the Kobe Bryant story. They have no idea. An 18-time All-Star, a five-time NBA champion, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and an all-time competitor. It's the story of a young man who wanted to be the greatest from a very young age and of this shoe company that identified him as the next Michael Jordan. Suddenly he was a teenager going to the NBA when teenagers didn't do that. And from there it became this golden tale of early success and championships and heartbreak and conflict. When everything seemed terrible and lost, it became then the story of a young man who had the will to rebuild his life and to find success again. It's a most unusual NBA tale. Hey, Sammy, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm ready. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about uh, Kobe and Showboat. I want to start with how are you enjoying the 72nd NBA season? There's a couple of storylines, a couple of characters. Is there anything that's kind of standing out for you? Well, you know, the league is very young, has been for a while now. But, you know, I think younger players are adjusting. And obviously, uh, you look at the Celtics roster Mm -hmm. and you look at other places and you think, gosh, they're playing better and better at a youthful age. Those who aren't necessarily playing better, that's not a slam against them. I still think it takes time. Trust the process. The NBA is definitely a different game with younger players and, of course, with changed defensive rules that continue to be an adjustment. How did the NBA come into your life? Was it a game that you went to, or did you see on TV, or like, how did it come into your life? I um, began, like a lot of people, watching it on TV, reading about it, uh, reading the work of David Halberstam. Um, you know, my father was a huge basketball nut. He was a he. He, he and his brothers were really fine players. His older brother was an all-state player in West Virginia. My my father was good enough to earn a college scholarship, but uh, his father dropped dead that summer 
that he was supposed to go off to college, and my father had younger brothers and sisters, long story here. So he went to work on the loading docks of a supply company, but later began playing in the uh, industrial leagues of southern West Virginia. This is back in the 1930s. And in that capacity, he got to play against the original Celtics and some different things. And so his experience in basketball was great. While, while I... Uh, enjoyed football more and even played a year of college football. My uh, father was an absolute basketball nut. And I, uh, once, once he became ill when I was a young reporter, I already had played a lot of pickup basketball in my life, but I became obsessed with basketball. He, uh, he had cancer, and it was my way of feeling closer to him, particularly after he passed in 1981. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. That's sad. But that's kind of cool, too, in a weird way, kind of just honoring dad. Well, you know, I really didn't realize a lot about it until I did the Jordan book, uh, Michael Jordan Life, which is so many of my recent books are much more uh, or as much about family as they are about basketball. But uh, it really, uh, doing that book really allowed me to understand just this this deep, almost dog whistle connection that the influence our, that our parents have on us. And we can be driven to do things as Michael Jordan was driven throughout much of his life to, to prove something to his father. We can, we can be on a mission to do that and not really even have it in our conscious minds. It's hard to articulate. I mean, you spent, for the Kobe uh, book, Showboat, you spent the first 240 pages. Uh, this is the hardcover, but you spent the first 240 pages kind of documenting Kobe's dad growing up in Italy, high school. This is all before the Lakers. That would almost be like a whole biography in a sense by itself, just 240 pages. It, it would, but, you know, if you really, I, I found, and I, I believe this to be really true, you have to discover the complete context if you're going to look at, at these super competitive basketball players. And, you know, guys like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant are not just basketball players. They are large cultural figures, particularly Jordan. He is the impact he has had in so many ways. Those things are tremendous. And so you really have to go back and sort of peel back the layers of the family and come to understand it. That was I did that with a book I did on Jerry West for ESPN. And, of course, I'm uh, from the southern Appalachians and the Blue Ridge Mountains, and my father is from West Virginia. And I was looking at all the cultural influences. The great coach Pete Newell had told me once that if I really wanted to understand Jerry West, I had to understand West Virginia. And when I turned to do the book on Jordan, you know, he was a guy, the first guy to come along, African-American, who was marketed at that level, and it, it changed everything. And, you know, I wanted to reconnect him with his African-American heritage, with his, with his roots, the way I had done in the Jerry West book. Because the marketing itself in that era in the 1980s almost sterilized him for approval by, you know, by the the majority of the population by Caucasians. He had to he had to be super clean, and uh, as a result, he was sort of divorced from anything in his past. 
And what I wanted to do was to reconnect. With the Kobe book, it was the same thing. Different on a cultural level, but reconnecting to Philadelphia, to his father, it, it all resonated. It, you know, if people are just dying for the pure Kobe basketball game by game story, you know, that, that's not what that book is about. Mm-hmm. That book is about trying to understand Kobe Bryant because, he, you know, in so many ways he was so impactful. Yeah, uh, you had this great line from uh, Scoop Jackson, uh, where Kobe was in Philly, I think it was, and he was leaving the game and he was had some tears in his eyes. And Scoop Jackson said, look how long it took for Muhammad Ali to find understanding. And now that Kobe's gone, and what you're talking about too with the book, do we have an understanding of Kobe and who he was and what he brought to the game? Well, I can say this, that in writing the book, and, you know, I wrote an earlier book about Kobe when he was a very young player called Mad Game. But when I went back to do the deep dive for a full biography, I was astounded because all all the stuff about Kobe was wrong from the start. It was assumed he was a son of a rich man. It was assumed that he was demanding to go to the Lakers. It was assumed that he really, truly, absolutely wanted to go to the NBA right out of high school. And all of those things were wrong. The, the driving force in Kobe's life came down to the fact that his father had played 16 years of pro ball. The family had lived a good life, but he had no family had no discernible income. Joe Bryant was working as a volunteer coach once the family returned to Philly. And so there was this huge demand for revenue. And he, he began coaching in college as an assistant coach and trying to work all these different plans. But Kobe very quickly became the family's meal ticket. And so much of what went on, of what was misunderstood by the public, and so much of what made Kobe so unpopular at that time was really about his family's need for money. Why did the Kobe narrative get so muddled, or why was the narrative even wrong in the first place? It was just bad journalism, or where did that come from? Well, I, you know, I, I first of all, it was all brand new. There was absolutely no one in in high school basketball who wanted to go to the NBA back then. It was very much a tough game, a game of men, and everybody, Sonny Vaccaro, the great kingmaker in basketball, talked extensively about his experiences with me. And, uh, you know, he couldn't find people to turn pro. He wanted Felipe Lopez before Kobe. Sonny Vaccaro had worked for Nike, had been pivotal in the in Air Jordan and all the development of Michael Jordan's shoe lines. He was subsequently fired in the early 90s by Nike. He wanted revenge against Nike. He wanted revenge against the NCAA. And Vaccaro went to work for Adidas and set out to find the next Jordan and to steal that figure away from college basketball and away from Nike. And he wasn't even thinking about anybody like Kobe Bryant when it all happened, as the book explains. It, it's sort of a shot out of left field. But Adidas is the one that is, and Sonny Vaccaro worked so hard to put Kobe with, with the Lakers, the Bryant family didn't really have any clue about it. And as Vaccaro revealed, as, as all this was unfolding during Kobe's senior year in high school and 
and Vaccaro said it was, you know, the sort of the sneakiest thing I'd ever done, the most clandestine thing I'd ever done, bringing Kobe to the NBA by paying him millions and kicking his parents hundreds of thousands of dollars on the side. Kobe looked at him as they were getting ready to close the deal and said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there any way my family could have this money and I could still go to college? <laughs> and, you know, there's an irony in that. My great friend, Tex Winter, who became Kobe's mentor, always said the one thing that separated Kobe from Michael is that Michael had three years of college playing in a you know a very structured system. He learned everything, and Kobe went from this overpowering high school player right into the NBA, this league of men, and it... It was tough. He didn't have the background in basketball in in the sense of team to really, really make that transition. So the irony is Kobe wanted to go to college. The finances forced him otherwise, and it branded him. And, you know, Kobe's so obsessed with competing he never has campaigned over this. He's never pointed out any of this. It's not one of his arguments. He's just plowed right through and done what he's done. It's, this has always been sort of a silent, unarticulated, but very clear fact of Kobe Bryant's life. Yeah, the the Tex Winter line that you're talking about, uh, when he was comparing Jordan and uh, Kobe, he was talking about uh, what Jordan played with Dean Smith in North Carolina. And he said, Tex Winter believed that Brian's lack of college experience was ultimately the thing that kept him from his goal of being the unquestioned greatest of all time. That's on page 215. Right. And Tex said, and, you know, in our many conversations over the years, Tex uh, had explained, you know, and he often marveled, Tex did, as the assistant coach for the Bulls, uh, Tex, uh, the genius of the triangle offense, and then the assistant coach for the Lakers, he had spent years coaching Michael and Kobe. And, and even late into the process, in my conversations with Tex, it was clear he was awed by the similarities and the differences between these two great players that he coached. So how did writing Showboat, uh, the Kobe book, shape your perspective on Jordan? Or did it? Uh, it did. You know, there's a lot of Jordan information in the book. I, I, I had spent a lot of time with Sonny Vaccaro for the, my book, Michael Jordan, The Life. But when I came back, I really spent a lot of time interviewing him because he was the architect of so many things. Of uh, you, you know, he changed basketball by paying, by bringing shoe company money. Now, Kevin Garnett had come out of high school and really didn't want to go to the NBA but he feared his grades. His test scores weren't going to be good enough. They were. He could have gone to college, but by then it was too late. He had entered the draft. But Kevin Garnett had no great shoe deal of any sort when he went in out of high school. And, you know, there were tremendous question marks over both Garnett and, and Kobe as they tried to make this move. But Sonny Vaccaro pioneered uh, the next year after Kobe, he he used huge Adidas money to bring in Tracy McGrady. And so the game we're talking about today, being so young and and being populated by these these very talented but very raw uh, players, 
uh, either uh, a year out of college right into the NBA. All of that was brought about by Sonny Vaccaro and his desire to change things. And all of the money that poured into youth sports, into AAU basketball, all of those things were a result of this. So in a lot of ways, it's not just Kobe Bryant's story. It's a watershed moment for basketball today as we know it. There's a great 30 for 30, uh, ESPN 30 for 30 on Sonny Vaccaro that kind of documents his work and his uh, legacy, I guess, for lack of a better term. Right, uh, and that was fascinating. You know, it would have been so hard to touch on all the Kobe stuff. It really was sort of unseen and, and not talked about because, of course, Kobe uh, later, with all the manipulation of his young life, uh, as George Mumford, the great sports psychologist, told me, um, and pointed out, you know, manipulation leads to tremendous resentment. And of course, fairly early in his career, Kobe Bryant, through his parents, through his shoe company, including Vaccaro, through his coach and even Shaquille O'Neal, all of these people out of his life, through his agent, all of these people out of his life and basically started over. It was a, a brutally difficult thing, but Kobe made it work. It it almost destroyed him, uh, that and other mistakes he made, of course. But manipulation, and Kobe was a very manipulated young man, despite the fact that he was so driven and worked so hard and wanted greatness so badly. He, he felt so manipulated, uh, and, and George Mumford, another of Kobe's mentors, said it's understandable that he would react and become alienated, the way at times Michael Jordan would become alienated from Phil Jackson, because manipulation can do that. And what about Phil Jackson then? Phil Jackson's king of manipulation. So how did writing the two books kind of shape your perspective on Phil Jackson? Well, that's a very complicated thing. I just got an email from Phil Jackson uh, last week, 17 years after uh, I had contacted him about an issue that had come up. I was writing a book about him. And Phil is an immensely, immensely complex person. He's, of course, not the only coach to be manipulative. You better be able to manipulate if you're a coach. <laughs> uh, but he is the ultimate mind games player, as Michael Jordan said. He marveled, and that, that's really where that title of, uh, of the biography I wrote about Phil Jackson is mind games, Michael said. Phil plays so many mind games, it's unbelievable. And there were many of them. And Phil is, um, you know, uh, I was talking with George Mumford, the psychologist, and he said, we'll spend years sorting out all the different things that, and the different angles that Phil was working and his relationships with these players. And also with guys like Tex Winter and Mumford himself and me and these different people that Phil was pulling in and out of the equation. It was a pretty remarkable thing. Is it fair to even compare Jordan and Kobe? Because that's, that's one of the big arguments that a lot of NBA fans have. But are those comparisons fair? Or like, how do you measure then, if you don't compare Kobe to Jordan, how do you measure what his greatness is or what his achievements are? 
First of all, Tex Winter, the guy who coached both of them, he couldn't stop comparing the two. The Lakers coaching staff would marvel and talk about it often once they had left Chicago and gone to Los Angeles to coach Kobe and Shaq. And Michael and Kobe themselves have looked at this. And the other big factor in the negative public view of Kobe is that he was this imposter, this copier, this guy who was coming along and, and pretending to be Jordan. He was this this inauthentic figure. And, of course, one of the other things I really wanted to do with this book is go back to what I call the organic Kobe. And, of course, what I found is, as I got into this is here's this guy who had this monster competitive nature from the youngest age. Now, when he was in high school, it became clear when Vaccaro first saw Kobe the summer after his sophomore season, Vaccaro had been looking for this guy with the it factor who could be the next Jordan. And as Vaccaro explained it, he just went out of his mind when he saw Kobe, knew that he spoke all these languages, had all this physical ability, this game, this drive, this it factor. And Kobe's AAU coach within a few weeks understood what Vaccaro planned to do. And very soon, uh, I, I think you have to take any teenager and if you give them through the power of suggestion what you're saying, the idea that, and they're already very talented, that they're going to be the next Michael Jordan, the next Mozart, the next whatever, well, th that begins to, to be this great force. Now, was Kobe studying Michael like every other kid in, in that age, uh, as Michael, you know, had played a, a full decade plus of marvelous basketball. Yes, high school basketball players all over the world, little kids were all enthralled to be like Mike. The song, Be Like Mike. Kobe, Kobe was this genius level talent. You know, Sonny Vaccaro said the transformation was amazing once the suggestion hit. He shaved his head, he began to adopt the Jordan mannerisms, but that's youth. That's how youth would be prone to that kind of suggestion. And so I think that's where this book points out the organic Kobe, and it also identifies the moment when he he began, when this took on a larger than expected turn. And the, you know, I was rebounding free throws for Kobe in the forum in 1999 during the playoffs, and I had just spent years with the Bulls, you know, and it, I was very close with Tex Winter, and. Kobe, out of the blue, told me he always dreamed that Tex Winter would be his coach. He was very frustrated because the Lakers really didn't have an organized offense at that time. And I, I told him, I said, look, I can arrange for you to start talking with Tex. And I set it up uh, for those guys to talk on the phone. And that was Tex was an assistant with the Bulls then. He hadn't even gone to L.A. That would happen the next year. But Kobe and Michael had these very similar games. Kobe had created the thing that interested me about Kobe's young players that he already had all these post moves like Michael when he came into the league. He just couldn't use them because Shaq was in the way. <laughs> and I would and later when Tex became the uh, Lakers assistant coach in charge of everything, I would talk with uh, Tex about it, and he would say, "Could you imagine if Michael came into the NBA?" and played on a roster with Shaq, what a collision that would be. And, 
you know, observations about this season, think about this. In years past, all the great big men inhabited the block and were down there on the box. They weren't out much shooting face-up jumpers. They certainly weren't at the three-point line. They weren't diving from the screen and roll in the perimeter. They were on the block. And it frustrated Elgin Baylor no end once he began playing with Wilt Chamberlain because all of his sorties to the basket suddenly had nowhere to go with Wilt down there and all the defenders around him. And so the one thing about this age, I'm among the many who lament the demise of the traditional big man. But I I think we'll revert to that in the future. We'll have more traditional post-play out of big men. But we'll also understand as coaches how to vacate the post, even with a very talented guy like a Shaq or a Wilt. To survive, they'll have to have learned to shoot and play from the perimeter. And that ultimately will open the floor and, and create even better stuff. What draws you to these personalities, these competitive personalities? You mentioned like Jordan Kobe, Tex Winter. Uh, Phil Jackson, like these are strong competitive personalities. They want to win. What draws you to them and to kind of document their stories? Well, the same thing that draws millions of readers around the globe to them. They are fascinating. You know, it's a mix of uh, athletic brilliance. It's a mix of uh, brilliant coaching. Uh, It's deeply psychological. It's rooted, uh, you know, Phil Jackson was raised by fundamentalists, as Johnny Bach used to call them, tent preachers. And so here's this, uh, it's got all the, you know, Phil himself imbued the game with all this religious symbolism from Native Americans to Christianity to Zen teachings and all kinds of Eastern mysticism. And so, and Western mysticism for that point. And so, and given the fact that basketball is also a global game, unlike American football or or other uh, uh, games of that nature, all of these things transpired to pull us all in. You know, the NBA was a forgot. I actually got involved during the Magic Larry era. The NBA was uh, sort of... St- starting to emerge. Larry and Magic did wonderful things. Jordan came along, and suddenly people everywhere cared a lot about the NBA. It was remarkable. And then I remember the the online uh, nature of things. I was doing one of my first online columns, 1995-96. You know, we really, the internet suddenly became an item of popular culture. It had been largely underground before that. And I was doing a story for some uh, arm of Fox News online, and within about uh, 10 minutes of posting that story, a 12-year-old kid from Iceland sent me an email about an NBA question. Internet network. And I realized, wow. We're going to, every, like minds, people fascinated by this stuff, this, this internet thing is, is going to be huge. Uh, of course, it's lots of things too. Basketball is well packaged for TV. Um, you know, it goes to the heart of the, the, the troubled issues of America. You know, you could say right now that America is strangling on its racial history. But one of the things that, 
uh, sports, but pro basketball in particular has done is to create one of several important venues for race relations and racial understanding and also for black power, which is absolutely critical in the equation for America. It's not it's obviously critical for black people, but black power and the and the uh, I hate to get political on this, but it's all wrapped together. Black power and the sharing of power in this country, and the uh, the full articulation of what the founders of the Constitution meant for or, or said, and when they wrote about uh, democracy. All of that sort of rides in the wings with this stuff. It has been important culturally in so many ways, as it has in terms of business. Look at how the sport is just raking in huge amounts of money today uh, with TV interest. It's pretty. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing and a positive thing beyond all the other complicating factors in our culture. And circling back to the players are you still defining the greatness of a player by championships or how are you defining greatness well you know i wrote a 700 page book on michael jordan without calling him the greatest if you notice i don't really get into that inflationary language it's great for clickbait but I really sort of define greatness within the eras. And the games are so different. The game that Michael Jordan played and the tremendous physicality he had to build in himself and the tremendously physical defenses he he faced that defined him in his era, that's all gone. You can't lay a hand. There no. When I coached high school basketball, we did bump the cutter drills all the time mm-hmm. where you knock the crap out of anybody cutting through the lane and, you know, Hand checking was fully allowed, and the game was very physical. That game no longer exists. Uh, the nineties Knicks—they were like super right, intimidating. Right. The Pistons that I traveled so much with and wrote about—it—it uh, it really, um, you know, the game has gotten on to its next evolution, the full articulation of the three-point shot. But before that, you know, the basketball—I was fortunate early on to have to write the history of the NBA Finals and to interview all these people. And I, I did the history of the Final Four with Billy Packer, and, uh, the CBS broadcaster who had broadcast it for years. And just the opportunity to interview all of the old-timers in the late 80s and early 90s and to get that understanding of the game, it, it would be impossible to compare Mike and with with big men today and it was impossible you know the game in the late 30s was all two-handed set shooters my old man had this beautiful two-handed set shot mm. and he could drill it from anywhere and they had a center jump after every basket uh but look at kareem and what an incredible player he was he didn't inspire people emotionally but he changed the game and he brought I mean, it's, he's just the tower. You could argue for any one of these guys as being the greatest. And to argue for one against all the others, I don't know. I think that's the maniacal part of it. I, I just sort of try to understand it all. I'm not worried about who's the greatest. 
Yeah, it's cool. Last question. Kobe's retirement ceremony, his jersey will be retired on December 18, kind of officially kind of done. And we've seen Jordan become more political in his retirement. We've seen him take over his ownership of the Hornets. What are you expecting for Kobe in his next act now as he goes off into retirement? Oh, I think he's going to be very aggressive in all the things he loves, writing and and creating messages and producing. I think he may end up doing some coaching. He's coaching. Uh, he's teaching his uh, daughter's team the triangle offense, and I did the same thing, coached my daughter's AAU team, and we went to Division One Nationals as 11-year-olds and brought back a trophy, uh, finishing third in the shootout, which is about 10th in the country, I think. That's and pretty good. So, um who knows where he's a young man he's just discovering all sorts of things he's incredibly bright i think he has a lot of integrity people have accused him of not having that he's made his share of mistakes he uh virtually destroyed his life much like tiger woods did but kobe had the the strength of will and the good luck to to rebuild his life and so i view I view a lot of blue sky for Kobe Bryant. He's just got to sort out where he's going to put that full focus and power. It's going to be an interesting era because, I mean, Derek Jeter also just retired from the Yankees. And a lot of these players now have a huge amount of connections, have a huge amount of money. And this kind of worldwide fame, Kobe's known in a number of different countries, especially China. And so to have access to those type of resources, we NBA players didn't retire like this back in the day, like when Jordan retired and stuff like that. So there's a lot that they kind of do and build on. Right. And of course, in Michael's defense, you know, he came along in a different era. Um, my book is about the the racial policies in North Carolina. They had more Klan members than all the southern states combined voting. You, you, you didn't vote if you were African-American. It was excluded. It was uh, the whole thing is laid out in that book. And so everyone is shaped by different things. The one thing that makes me positive about these mega athletes, they've been very disciplined. They, uh, it's, it's like a role model like them, like Magic Johnson for them. They've been very disciplined. They have their interest. They are very bright. And they, um, they offer things that could lead to big success. On the other hand, they could take great risk. You know, I wish I could have talked to Scottie Pippen before he bought the Air Pip airline. Oh, yes. Took most of his cash. So they have to be careful. But today's athletes, a lot of them have far more cash than anyone could imagine. So I know Showboat is now just out in paperback, but who... Who is the next person you're going to target and kind of write about? You've written about uh, Jerry West, Stockton Malone, Kobe, uh, Michael. Like, who's the next person that you want to sit down and kind of write or focus on? You know, doing these big biographies takes a huge chunk out of my life. And so I am going back and forth with my agent over three or four guys. Um, and I, we really haven't settled on one yet. And so I, I, I hate to play my cards close because it is an interesting question, but I was so burned out and exhausted over the Kobe book. I mean, it was brutal to do all of that work in that short amount of time, days on end, I mean months on end, writing around the clock, researching, interviewing. I didn't think I would ever write again, but about a year and a half after, since I finished it, I'm starting to emerge from my burnout. You know, I did, I've done six or seven 
five or six biographies in about eight years, and it's it's just an awful lot. So now I'm I'm starting to feel better, and I'm just starting to figure out where I want to go next with what I'm doing. All right, but for now, Kobe Showboat is out in paperback. Thanks, Roland. Sammy, you are the man. Thank you. Questions. Thank you so much.